Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kilowatt. My name is Bodie, and I am your host. Sometimes when I do the intro to this podcast, I actually forget how I do the intro to this podcast, and it sounds weird in my head. It's probably not, but it feels weird. Moving on so this doesn't get more awkward. On today's podcast, I sat down with Hari Nair. Hari is the Vice President of Fleet Electrification and Sustainability at Merchant's Fleet. If you haven't heard of Merchant's Fleet, let me fill you in real quick. They've been around for more than 60 years, and as you can probably imagine, they deal in fleets, managing them, leasing solutions, that kind of thing, to companies, government agencies, you name it. Hari and I sat down and we talked about transitioning fleets from ICE vehicles to electric vehicles. We talked a little bit about the benefits, the challenges, all that kind of stuff. Rather than me continuing to blab about what we talked about, let's just go ahead and welcome Hari to the show. Thank you very much, Bodhi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Can you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about Merchant's Fleet? Of course, yeah. So the organization I work for is called Merchant's Fleet. Um, I am the Vice President of Electrification and Sustainability. Um, Merchant's Fleet, in, in very simple terms, is a, is a quintessential fleet management company um, founded in the late 60s. Uh, we manage hundreds of thousands of vehicles across the United States uh, for clients of all different sizes and shapes. Uh, what sets Merchant's apart from the rest of the fleet management industry is we're the fastest growing fleet management company in the United States, and we have aspirations to be the most electric fleet management company on the planet. Um, That is really what I'm here to help transform merchants and in the process also transform our clients. Uh, The pathways to getting that is to become the real experts in electrification, both on the EV side and also the infrastructure side, because both have to go hand in hand. Um, Now, the question may be, what is a fleet management company do? We do everything from vehicle acquisition to branding to upfits to monitoring the vehicle through its usable life, fueling, accident management, maintenance, uh, driver support, roadside assistance, taxes, insurances, registration. And when the vehicle approaches end of life, uh, we take care of disposing the vehicle off and then reinserting a new vehicle for that application. So it's full service for the life of that asset. 
which allows the fleet operator to actually do their business as opposed to managing their fleet. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and kind of your bona fides. Sure. Um, So I'm an electrical engineer by training, Um, spent about 20 years uh, in the battery, energy, hardware, software system development space uh, prior to coming to Merchants about two years ago. Um, My role here is to transform two entities, uh, one being Merchants to become the most electric company in the world and also help transform our clients. The I lead a team here at Merchants, and we are the so-called electrification experts within the company. We go pretty deep into looking into the newer vehicles that come out. How good are they for an application? So we're a team of you know, mixed personalities, mixed backgrounds, which allows us to view the electrification problem from multiple different lenses. That is my biggest, I would say, accomplishment here, I would say, thus far in being able to bring that group together so that we can solve real-world challenges for our clients. What are the key benefits in electrifying a fleet? Well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start here. How, what's the minimum number of vehicles that we need before we, we, we qualify as a fleet? Like if I had a company and had five vehicles, is that technically a fleet? That's, is that something you would manage? Absolutely, we would. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I jokingly say any number greater than zero is, is, is possible. Of course, you know, there are efficiencies that come with scale. And then the way you look at that is, you know, if it's five vehicles in one location, uh, in most cases, an organization that is reasonably well managed themselves can handle those type of numbers. Things start to get complicated when you have seven or 10 vehicles that are now doing all different kinds of things. They need different outfits. They're running in different states or jurisdictions, or there is a mix of specialty vehicles and conventional vehicles and executive vehicles. That's when the fleet management becomes more and more complicated. And, and as the number goes up, you become multi-state operations. It, it, is a, it is a complex problem for a lot of our clients, and, and they have to staff up you know, armies of people just to manage their vehicle fleet. The, the issue is if the vehicles are down, a revenue-making asset is not doing its job, which is making revenue, right? So you have to maintain uptime of the fleet as high as possible. In some ways, you know, I think of it as the way airlines have to operate. You know, the airplane sitting on the ground has to be reduced to the as shortest time frame as possible. Those things are meant to be up in the air. Same way, the fleet vehicles have to be on the road doing the job, whether it is taking a service person from point A to point B or delivering goods and services from point A to point B. That's when they're making money, not sitting in the parking lot or worse, sitting in a maintenance shop. Sure. And how does your group help uh, companies transition to electric vehicles do you go to them and say look this is a this is a great opportunity because you're you're going to be doing things that are like better for the planet and you're also going to be saving your money yourself money in the long run or are they coming to you it's a combination of both um see we we are a legacy fleet management company so we have many clients and we have data on how the clients are operating their vehicles to a very large degree of accuracy So we can use that, call it historical look back capability to say, you are a good candidate for electrification in A, B, C, and D jurisdictions today. And here is what we have done as an analysis to say, X number of your legacy vehicles can actually be electrified using the vehicles that are available in the electrified space today, right? Or we can build a plan to say 15 vehicles 
can be retired and 15 EVs can be inserted into that application by, say, mid of next year or early next year on a timeframe that makes sense, right? That is us leveraging our inherent competency as a leading fleet management company. The second part of how we help clients or identify clients is a lot of folks come to us because we have created a reputation of being the most electric fleet management company or the the, the most innovative in that space. They come to us to say, hey, we're seeing the new Clean Fuels Act in California. We're seeing ESG regulation requirements. My parent company in Europe has put this mandate on me that I have to have some amount of my fleet electrified. Uh, My employees are asking for this. Or I have found out that the total cost of ownership was low. Any number of reasons, Bodhi. They They will look around and say, hey, who can help me with this? They find us, they reach out. It percolates to my team. And then we start that process of transition. And then do you have a rough number on, because buying an electric vehicle up front is usually a little bit more costly, although that is coming down. How long before companies realize like a savings? That that number can vary uh, fairly widely. Uh, and you are absolutely correct in that the, what we call in the industry is the origination cost, which is the initial cost of that vehicle, right? Most EVs that come out today have a higher origination cost when compared to an equivalent ICE vehicle of that same type. So for for example, when I make that comparison, let's say a Ford E-Transit compared to an E-Transit, that is the equivalency comparison I'm looking for. I'm not comparing a Ford E-Transit to a Chevy Bolt. That, that equation doesn't work. The Even though the origination cost premium for EVs are higher, we have done countless analysis for clients that show that in some cases, your, your time frame to, to offset that higher premium for origination costs can be as low as a couple of months, six months, or it could be as long as a year and a half or so. That variation is actually a function of how the vehicle is being used or what the utilization of that asset is going to be more so than an inherent characteristic of the vehicle themselves. But there is clear data and clear analysis supported by data that shows you know you can reduce your total cost of ownership by by switching to EVs. Now you have to be careful though. There are certain areas, even in the United States, where inserting an EV might not look uh, TCO comparable, especially if you're only going to be doing public charging. Right? Public charging in certain areas can get expensive. You know, at, at forty cents per kilowatt hour, that number can add up, which will reduce your TCO benefits. But generally speaking, there is there is clear indication that migrating to EVs can reduce your operational overhead. And you kind of touched on this a little bit, but what are the biggest obstacles uh, these fleet owners are facing when it comes to transitioning? Because you, you do need to have some type of infrastructure in place to make this work. Yeah, and I think to, to, to us, more than the infrastructure, which is a very solvable problem, the the barrier to electrification usually starts with the lack of education. Um, fleet operators are so good at you know a rinse and repeat model. They they use the same vehicles in relatively same applications for their business. When the vehicle is done, they retire it. They get a new one. Repeat, repeat, repeat. All of a sudden, here comes this new technology with with batteries, with with motors, with inverters. And now you need to have charging in place. So there is a lot of confusion when when it comes to understanding how this technology can fit into your existing application. Right? 
the problem typically starts there. That is more of an educational barrier, which through our consulting team, through the electrification team at Merchants, we're, we've become pretty good at solving that educational barrier. Once you're past that, then the biggest barrier in the industry today boils down to two things. We touched upon this previously. The origination costs of some of the vehicles are higher. So if you're comparing an e-transit to an equivalent vehicle, right, the cost of the electrified vehicle is going to be higher. So we have to justify how that fits into the financial model for the client who's willing to adopt. Third comes the infrastructure challenge. Where are you charging these vehicles? How are you charging them? What is the type of charger that you need? Do you need a combination of residential charging, depot-based charging, and public charging? Or do you need something that is only depot, right? That, again, falls into that consultative model that we, we use to help clients transition. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Um, for whatever reason, a lot of roofers are live in my neighborhood, and they all have trucks that are provided for them by their their uh, their companies. And if they went to an F one fifty Lightning, for instance, uh, they don't they, they they go directly from their house to the job. They don't they don't stop anywhere. So these companies seem to be open to residential charging. We're seeing uh, an inc- an uptick actually in companies who are willing to supply residential charging equipment. Uh, in fact, it is an area of focus for us because we have a lot of those type of service uh, uh, vehicles in our portfolio that are take home vehicles. Uh, now, let's be let's get a little bit granular on that. It is unlikely that a huge market will form where a class eight tractor is being taken home every single day. That doesn't really happen, right? They, they typically always gravitate towards a yard or a, or a depot setting. It's the vehicles that you mentioned, the lightnings, the, the light duty, medium duty pickup trucks, uh, class one, class two cargo vans. Those are the type of vehicles that go home. In a residential setting, typically these vehicles are idling for anywhere from six to eight hours overnight. That six to eight hours is adequate to charge up the vehicle without having to invest in a super duper heavy fast charger in a residential setting, which is impractical to do anyways. So there is a convergence of the need in the industry and a technological solution that exists. And once you put the two together, right, you can actually solve that problem of, yeah, the roofer now has to go from his house all the way to a job site without having to stop anywhere for charging. That is achievable today. I'm assuming you're tracking these vehicles in some way, shape, or form, right? How are we getting that information? Are you just sucking up the the data from the car? Do you install something? Is it a combination? Are you relying on reporting from the drivers? It, it's a combination uh, of, of all of that. Um, some of the newer vehicles have built-in telematics systems that are reporting out, you know, odometer, how many miles are being run, when it is being fueled, when it is idling, all that type of parameters. Some of the mid-year vehicles, you know, looking back in time, mid-year is, you know, say the 2010 to 2015 type time frame model year vehicles, they may not have built-in telematics. So then in those cases, you can actually install third-party telematics, which can provide the data. Very older vehicles may not have that level of support, but that's also where we come in, right? You don't want to be operating an extraordinarily old vehicle because your risk of maintenance uh, catastrophic maintenance expenses are very high. So we try to defleet them at the right point in the market. But back to your specific question, we can look at a whole set of data parameters. 
how many miles is being driven, how many miles monthly, annual, daily, that type of analysis. What's your cost of fueling? What is the geographic area that these vehicles are operating in? And I'll touch upon geography in a little bit. Um, what is the driver behavior of these vehicles? Are these vehicles typically being driven at 90 miles an hour or it's a stop and go traffic conditions, right? All of that factors into providing a derivative to say, okay, X, Y, and Z assets in a bigger fleet is good to convert to EVs. Now, why does geography matter? For a couple of reasons. If you're operating in very weather-sensitive situations, right, extremely cold weather conditions, EVs will have a perceptible degradation of range. It is a temporary phenomenon. It's not a permanent thing. In the winter months, your range will drop. So if it's someone who's using an EV in those applications, and they typically do, let's say, 100 miles every day, then you have to make sure that the EVs that we recommend will actually be able to provide approximately 130 miles in the peak of winter. Right? You don't want to spec a vehicle that will only give you 120 miles in the best day of summer, because then come winter, your, your range will drop and you will not be able to put those assets. So, so geography plays a significant role. If you now start to layer in the availability of incentives and, and, and rebates, right, geography becomes even more critical because there are certain states where the incentive landscape is very fertile and certain other states where it is still becoming more fertile. So you can then play that incentive stacking game to further reduce that cap cost variation, the origination price premium we talked about to make things more affordable, not just on vehicles, but also on infrastructure. Now, this this next question kind of goes along with the geography because I was kind of curious, like if you're operating a fleet in L.A., support and maintenance is not a big deal. Mm-hmm. But if you're operating a fleet in like the town my dad grew up in Mississippi, support and maintenance might be very difficult uh, just because he lived in a very rural area. Of course. How, how do you manage that? If somebody's like, I am dead set on going electric, but there's really nobody there to support or maintain those vehicles. How is that handled? A couple of different ways. Uh, keep in mind, 99.99% of EVs that are coming out are connected vehicles, right? So in majority of these cases, if it is a serious issue, serious issue being issue with the battery, the powertrain, the inverters, the motors, the onboard charging systems or onboard user interfaces, etc., in most cases, the OEM might be able to telematically look at the issue and at least have an early diagnosis of what the problem is. Normal things, tires, brakes, windshields, mirrors, wiper blades, tail lights, headlights, pretty much you can take it to any, any shop. Uh, now, the shop may not understand what vehicle that you just showed up in. Because a couple of days ago, I got I got pulled over, and the, and the, and the police officer who, who interacted with me was very was more interested in the vehicle than in the perceived infraction that I did, which wasn't anything. So we had a nice conversation, and he went on his merry way, gave me a warning, and, and I went home with my warning. Um, so, in 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 now coming back to what I was talking about, some of the shops may actually say, oh, "I can't I can't service this thing because I've never seen this thing before." This is where it is also important to to work with potentially a fleet management company because, see, we have networks, nationwide networks of maintenance partners, right? When we start onboarding more and more EVs, we're typically looking out in the areas where these are being deployed to say, okay, who can service tires, brakes, wiper blades, headlights, taillights, a small fender bender type problems. But we will not deploy things in bulk unless the OEM has committed to being able to service the vehicles in that particular area. So back to your your example, 
you know, where your parent wants to operate the vehicle, we will look around to see who is in that network who can solve the basic issues of the car or the vehicle. Uh, now, if it is really, really rural and, and, and that is not viable, then we would come to you, Bodhi, as a, as a fleet operator and say, you may want to reconsider deploying this thing here. Why don't you look at suburban LA as your first application, right? Till the industry catches up to a point where you can reliably use the vehicle. Now, it is a very different thing, you know, using a consumer vehicle in your particular example of using it for your parents as opposed to a fleet vehicle, because more than likely your, your parents can't afford to have the vehicle being down for a day or so, right? It's not business critical for them. For a business, a vehicle being down for a day or two, back to my previous statement, is revenue loss. That is the thing we need to avoid. Yeah, and that's my follow-up question. When one of these things goes down, one of these EVs goes down, do you have extras to just kind of like, here you go, let's say it gets in an accident and it's going to be out for six weeks. Do you do you have the ability to replace that vehicle for them? Um not exactly replace it with an EV because that is a bit of a, a stretch goal for anybody in the space today. Sure. But where merchants can outshine is we have what is called as a mobility pool of vehicles. So think of it as vehicles that we can issue out on a short-term rental basis. So say, for example, you're operating an F-150 Lightning and it, it has an issue and it's going to take Ford four weeks or six weeks to get it back on the road. We can actually get you an F-150 from our mobility fleet that will help tide you over that time frame. Right? Now, not every fleet management company out there in the United States can do that type of intervention. And that's one of the differentiating factors for us. Right. So in that window that we talked about, you're not operating an EV, you're operating an equivalent vehicle, but it still gets you back on your service, on your road, on your job. Yes, you'll have to wait for Ford or GM or whoever, whosoever vehicle is in the shop to come back and get it back on service. I mean, all we really need is a Band-Aid, right? As long as you can provide one, that that's a big help. Exactly. Yeah, it, it is good to put that in perspective because, you know, the, the industry is not where where I would like it to be, where there's an abundance of EVs, right? In which case you can go drop off one and you pick up another EV and then off you go. We're not there yet. Uh, It's going to be another couple of years before we get to that point in transition. I would imagine if you're doing something like, uh, if you you are part of some sort of social services government group, it's pretty easy because you could just go out and buy 50 Ionic 5s. But it's probably a lot more difficult if you're doing anything that requires manual labor. You mentioned the uh, Ford E-Transit, right? Mm -hmm. What what other vehicles are they... Are, are companies wanting? So, so rather than give you names or, or sound like you know we're endorsing one versus the other, the way we look at it is which of these industry segments are more likely to transition and try to line up vehicles to that, right? Last mile delivery space, just because as a, as a species, we've gotten so good at ordering things from your smartphone and expect it to be showing up in our driveway within minutes, right? Last mile delivery space is, is a big booming area. And it is also one of the areas that are that is relatively easy to electrify. The types of vehicles that go there are typically, you know, class one, class two type vans um, and small box trucks. Those are all electrification friendly today. The other area that is that is starting to peak is like the F-150 Lightnings, which are the pickup trucks, medium duty to light duty pickup trucks. That area is growing. 
because naturally, you know, it, that vehicle is being used in so many millions of applications by so many different types of clients with different business profiles. That is an area of, of extremely high growth potential. The next is actually B2B area in, say, the class three to class five uh, trucking space. This is for warehouse to warehouse, um, medium distance or middle mile area, as, as we call it in the industry, where you're moving goods from a point A to a point B, not really consumer facing. You know, Think about a big warehouse moving equipment from one place to the other. That keeps the last mile deliveries up and running every single day. Those type of applicants are also seeing a spike uh, in EV demand. Excellent. Well, Hari, is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? Oh man, buddy, there is, there's, there's tons. You know, I could, I could go on this topic for for days or weeks on end. But generally speaking, you know, the, the questions I get is, you know, you touched upon some of them, the cost delta between a new vehicle and the old one, and how does that impact electrification? One of the areas that we did not touch upon is like, how does EVs fit into the overall ESG posture of a company? What, what is an ESG posture? environmental, social governance, uh, you know, and especially the environmental portion of it, where with the recently, you know, changed laws from SEC, companies have to report their scope one and scope two emissions. And in many cases, it may be difficult to go change your scope one emissions by inherently changing your business process, but you may actually be able to change uh, and get a preferential scope one emissions uh, score by inserting EVs because your direct tailpipe emissions goes down, right? The the other area that we did not get into is like, how does EVs play in with this whole energy discussion on the grid and the stability of the grid, that type of stuff. And we've seen certain very, very large clients of ours who are very forward thinking and they have realized that they can actually, you know, control the cost of their EV fueling if they integrate renewables into the electricity generation profile or get into long-term power purchase agreements with utility companies, which fixes their dollar per kilowatt hour for fleet fueling needs, right? That That is a remarkable transition transformation because when you look at the gas prices that you talked about, right, that perpetually fluctuating on a daily basis to going to a flat line, that gives uh, people who, who work on P&Ls a lot of freedom, degrees of freedom to use the excess monies for other investments in their business. So EVs can help facilitate that quite a bit. Yeah, in the area that I work in, there's a lot of warehouses. And most of those warehouses, a significant portion of their roof is covered with panels, solar panels. Yeah, exactly. Which is smart to do, especially here in Arizona. Absolutely. You guys have plenty of sun. Hari, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing this with us. Is there a way that people can get in touch with you if they're interested? Of course. Uh, I'm, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn, but uh, if you drop a note to, to merchants, uh, anybody here can find me any time of the day. I would welcome the outreach. Yes, I'll also put those notes, or those links in the show notes as well. Thank you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right. I'd like to thank Hari Nair for coming on and chatting with us today. I learned a lot. But more importantly, Hari was a really nice person, and I really like talking to nice people on this show. And you know who else is nice? The folks that helped set this up. And I'm going to thank Pia, Olivia, and Sina. There's quite a bit of back and forth that needs to take place for this kind of interview to happen. And I actually did very little of it. Those three folks did the lion's share of the work, so I can seriously thank you very much. And you know what? While we're on the gratitude train, let me just keep, let me just keep going. Uh, first up, there are three people who increased their pledges uh, on the Patreon for this show, and I appreciate it. Uh, I do want to reiterate that I'm totally fine with a dollar. You don't have to pledge more than that. I appreciate it when people do, but a, a dollar is fine. But thank you very much for increasing your pledge. And I've already sent a, an email to each one of them, letting them know that I appreciate them. But I do want to say it here. So thank you again, Tommaso, Stephen, and Bruce C. Thank you very much. All right, I have one more quick thank you, and then I'll let you all go. I want to thank Allison Sheridan. Allison and I were on a roundtable on the Daily Tech News Show when we talked about EVs. And we are on the roundtable with Howard Yermish, Rod Simmons, and the show's host, Tom Merritt, and Sarah Lane. Through that one show, I've met a lot of wonderful people. Howard is fantastic. He's been on the show before. Rod Simmons is fantastic. He's been on the show before. But Allison has been a fantastic friend, to not only to the show, but also to me. Like through Allison, I met Steve, her husband. He's a wonderful human being. I mean, I could go on and on for the list, but just to name a few, like Bart Bouchotts, who was on last week, Thomas, Mark, Stefan, Pat, Bruce, and much, much more. All of those folks found this show through Allison. I've been able to be on the Daily Tech News show a few times, and it's specifically through Allison and Chris Ashley saying nice things about me on that show. So a big thank you to Allison for being a good friend. Thank you to Steve and everybody else that I mentioned for being 
a good friend. This is, uh, I don't know how to say it without sounding like an idiot. So I'll just sound like an idiot. I love doing this show. I love interacting with the folks who listen to this show. It is a real pleasure to be able to do this show. So thank you not only to Allison, but to everybody I listed and everyone who listens to this show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now you might be wondering, (laughs) is this guy dying? No, I'm not dying, but I am a person that has a hard time expressing gratitude, and that's something that I'm trying to do better in my life, in my personal life, in my public life here on this particular show. And for not for medical reasons, I've been doing this for the last year or so. I, I spent an hour in a hyperbaric chamber, and when <laughs> when you're in it, when you're in a little small tube, uh, pressurized tube for an hour, you have a you have a lot of time to just kind of think. So. Normally I watch a Netflix movie, but this time I couldn't. I couldn't get Wi-Fi, so I just I just sat there and thought. And this is where my thoughts roamed, which is way better than where they normally go, which is much darker. So gratitude I'll take every single day. So thank you everybody for listening to the show. I appreciate each and every one of you. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Um, <laughs> we were going to have the Fisker earnings call. Fisker Motors earnings call on Friday, but you can't, you can't understand anything. They use such a terrible mic. You literally cannot understand anything that any of the Fisker team is saying. So uh, we're going to actually cover the Lordstown earnings call, which is actually happening tomorrow, because I think it might be their last. If it's not their last, it's pretty close to their last. So might as well um, honor Lordstown and their last earnings call. If you'd like to email me, you can do so at Bodie at 918digital.com. You can also find me on Twitter at 918digital. And thank you again for listening. I think I already said goodbye, so let's just play the music. 